For more than a decade, Catholics have found in John Paul II's Theology of the Body a guide for living the truth of the Church's teaching on human sexuality. But what about the rest of life? Does the Theology of the Body have anything to say about that? Join us today as we discuss that question and more with Catholic writer Emily Stimson, author of These Beautiful Bones and Everyday Theology of the Body. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we're going to be talking about everyday theology of the body. I'm your host, Michael Hernan. I'm joined here in our studios by our regular panelists, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, uh, TOR Chair in Biblical Theology in uh, the New Evangelization. Uh, and I am joined here by Emily Stimson. Emily, you're a Catholic writer here in Steubenville. You're the, um, uh, one of the editors at Our Sunday Visitor, as well as with um, uh, Franciscan Way. Uh, you've written a couple of books, The, the Catholic uh, Girl's Survival Guide, <laughs> and the book that we're going to be uh, talking about today, An Everyday Theology of the Body, These Beautiful Bones, which is, which is a great book. Um, you're a graduate of Miami University of Ohio. Uh, and you also did some uh, graduate work at John Hopkins as well as uh, at Franciscan University in Theology. So welcome to the program. You're no stranger to us here at the university, uh, but it is great to have you on the program today. Oh, it's great to be here, Mike. Yeah. You know, we, we should mention that she created all of the scripts <laughs> the last <laughs> 20 years, and now suddenly she's a character in this her own drama. I am. I'm a character in my own show. Is this the first time show. you're on the Presents show? Other than when you brought me well, in for dummy yeah. shows. So. Excellent. Yeah. Well, this is great. Well, she's always been very involved with Now the, you're with the real dummies. Now they kept me really running. Okay, so we're talking about uh, everyday theology of the body, but for those who are not familiar with theology of the body, how would you describe it? Well, it's the theology of the body is a series of Wednesday audiences that John Paul II did. They actually started out as a book, but then this, he was Carol Watiwa, he was cardinal when he wrote it, but then this little conclave came along and he got elected to be pope, and he put the book on the back burner. But not long after uh, he came to Rome, he started going through the book as a series of Wednesday audiences. So that's what the thing is. Uh, what it is, though, on a deeper level, is it's the church's understanding of what it means to be a human person, you know, a mm. union of body and soul made in the image of God, uh, and how the body is a gift, mm. and as a gift, it helps us see all of the world as a gift. Oh. So that's the theology of the body in a nutshell. I mean, a, a quick distinction, I think, which is helpful. It, it's not as if we have these bodies that are out there, these things that we sort of drag through life, but really we're spirits who are sort of lost in the cosmos. It's not that at all. We are the bodies mm -hmm. we possess. It, it's not something extrinsic to being a person. And, and the theology of the, of the body, as, uh, 
as enshrined and articulated by the Pope and wonderfully uh, popularized in your book, I, I think is the main chance of what it is we believe as Christians. Mm -hmm. What I really appreciate about this book is the way that you show that John Paul's vision of the theology of the body is much deeper and wider than simply sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go back and study what it was he was doing from the late 70s, really from 79 all the way through 85, I remember this because I came into the church as a new Catholic in 86, and I'd been devouring these Wednesday audiences. And I went to my graduate seminar professor and said, can I do a paper on the theology of the body of Christ and apply it to the church? And he was like, these are Wednesday audiences, you know, come on. Years later, he came back to me and apologized. He was like, I had no idea what he was doing week after week for years. But you captured something that I saw back then, because so often when we hear about it, it's just a, a beeline that people make to sexuality. And that's an important part of it. But sacramentality is the bigger part of it. The fact that earth is meant to lead us to heaven, that the, the, the material leads us to the spiritual, that the temporal leads us to the eternal, that the human is made for the divine, so that all of reality as God fashioned it had a sacramental quality. I mean, there are seven sacraments that Christ establishes for the new creation in the new covenant, but all of creation was sacramental in a general sense, and the practical implications of that are what you're bringing out here in a way I think that a lot of people have been looking for. Well, and that's been one of the problems is that most people just focus on the sex and sex is shiny. Right. <laughs> it's like sex, we all pay attention. But you can't live the theology of the body's teachings on sexuality if you don't get the Catholic vision of the world, right. if you don't see who the human person is and how yeah. you're supposed to treat them on the street corner, how do you do that in the bedroom when hormones are going? And it's, it's much more difficult to think rationally. So when you see the wholeness of it, you really begin to see the beauty of what people have been talking about for years. So, so how, you know, th th that is the context where a lot of people know of the theology body. How did that first encounter you, or, or what prompted the, this book to kind of come about? It was right after I first come back into the church. So I was probably 25 years old, it was within months, and I was actually on the tail end of an eating disorder. I had struggled with anorexia for six years. And I walked into the Catholic University of America bookstore on this day in March, and there was a big John Paul II display. Mm. And I saw the theology of the body. And I'm like, well, what does this church have to say about the body? Because I had been wrestling for years with you know, how I ate and body image, and I just wanted to know what the church had to say. And I picked up the book, bought it right <laughs> away, went home, started reading it, and everything changed for me. Fundamental questions about what it meant to be a woman, about how mm. I ate, about how I loved, all came into focus, and I, I was healed from my eating disorder, really through a combination of the theology of the body and the Eucharist. And so when I came here a year later, I tried to focus my studies on theology of the body as much as I could. And part of this actually started, the chapter on spiritual motherhood and fatherhood started as the paper I wrote I remember. for you oh, yes. in grad school. So. Oh, wow. So yes, yeah, so, so you had a personal encounter that had a very deep healing effect on you, and you see this as an opportunity for many others to, to see something more. And is, is it a worldview that, that really is being presented here? Well, what John Paul II does, I mean, it's the sacramental worldview mm -hmm. that okay. he represents. You know, we've struggled for so many years with conceptions of modernism, which reduces, you know, the world is just matter, there's no plan, there's no grace, there's no divine beauty permeating all of creation. Mm. And we've forgotten how to see that. 
John Paul II, I, I say that Theology of the Bodies in some ways is like hooked on phonics for the sacramental <laughs> worldview. You know, it takes this Catholic vision of the universe that Regis always talks about so beautifully in class, and it gives us a very concrete way to talk about it. He uses the language of personalism, you know, where we talk about gift and use and shame, which are very concrete concepts. That's a key point because it's the person. It's not just the body as a sign of the soul. I mean, in ancient Greek philosophy, they understood that much. But the, the notion of the person made in the image and likeness of God, that's elusive apart from divine revelation, apart from the graces that the Holy Spirit has given us, you know. And so to recognize that the body is not just an instrument of the soul, but is a sacrament of the person who has this dignity made in the image and likeness of God. But the person is male or female, and that's more than biological. There's a theological mystery to the person who is really fulfilled only through self-gift. And that's what the body sort of instructs us. And the practicality of that, again, has more to do with eating and conversations than simple sexuality. I mean, that is certainly an important part of it. But again, so much of what has been written and said about the theology of the body heads toward that. And this is, I think, something that is much, much broader and deeper yeah. and helpful. You know, what, what strikes me, Emily, is the fact that you had an encounter with a book yeah. and that that was somehow the catalyzing event that brought you back to the church and that some eating disorder would eventuate in eating the Eucharist, mm -hmm. God's body, mm -hmm. and that that would be so restorative yes. for you. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. About, the, about the Eucharist and the... Yeah, yeah well, I, I can remember going up to communion one day, and it was within, again, a couple months of coming back, and it occurred to me, I eat God. Like, the most intimate communion I have with God in this life is that I eat Him. And when you understand that, all of food becomes enchanted because you realize that from all eternity, God knew he would give himself to us as food. Like he yeah. made food mm -hmm. as a sign of the nourishment he would give us spiritually. So food does on this very concrete, natural level, you know, it's a sign of love and comfort and communion and nourishment. All that points towards the Eucharist. And so the more that more I saw what food was doing naturally, I understood what it was doing to me supernaturally. And the more I saw what it was doing to me supernaturally, the more it reordered my relationship relationship with food yeah. and in the natural world. So I was able to eat joyfully and gladly and stop counting calories and just see it all as gift. And I think that's what the theology of the body does. We're not just gifts in the bedroom. You know, we're gifts everywhere we go and everyone around us is a gift. That's beautiful. And so we have to treat people as gifts and recognize ourselves as a gift. It's almost a re-enchantment of the human person. Of the whole of universe. Yeah. 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 And and that's the sacramental worldview you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean and that's that is profound when we realize that nature, as we said earlier, nature's ordered towards the eternal, as we're, we're seeing all of these things, food, natural food, all these things, dress, and all those things, but they're all in competition with some things in this world. You know, so how do you take this, this kind of sacramental worldview that's really at odds with a lot that we see in our world today? Are there, are there issues, uh, competing forces uh, at work in this world? And what does this have to, to say uh, in regards to that kind of struggle? Well, the culture gives us a script. You know, every one of us wakes up every day, and we kind of do what the culture tells us to do. We may believe what the church says, but how we treat people as we go to the grocery store, mm. how we deal with our technology, how we pursue the work that we do, we're so often just acting like modernists. You know, we're not thinking about 
How am I treating this person online? How am I, you know, what does my home and the way it's decorated have to say about my Catholic faith? We don't think about that. We just march with the culture. Um, and so I think that's where theology of the body comes in, is it gives us a way to stop and think about it and say, all right, I'm throwing out the cultural script. You know, forget what the culture is telling me to do. I'm going to start thinking very concretely about how my faith tells me to do these things. And I think that's where John Paul II and the sacramental worldview, they give us a way to start rethinking that script. Because yeah, if not, we're just marching to the tune of modernism. You know, this idea of scripting is so important because you think about how science especially has been used to kind of script the life and the worldview of people without telling them what they're doing. And, and in a certain sense, it all proceeds along normal lines because we're fed truths, but they're half-truths, and they're usually the lower half, you know, so that quantity in math, you know, uh, and, and so reality is mathematized, it's reduced to number, or it is me it's mechanized, it's reduced to machinery, it's materialized, it's reduced to physical matter. You know, and this is where I think science has stripped humans of what civilizations have always known, that there's a religious component, that there's a spiritual, a transcendent. You know, even if you're not Christian, or even apart from Judaism, you know, the world as symbol is something that has always been there until science came along and said, oh, that's arbitrary convention. It's nothing but matter, it's nothing but number. And I think from our elementary school experience on, we tend to kind of suppress these senses, these urges, these transcendent longings that deep down we know it's more, and yet I guess it's not. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and that repression, I think, comes out sideways so often. And it's not just eating disorders, but sexual, you know, and uh, drugs and alcohol and all kinds of addictions because we don't know why we're wired the way we are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a, a wonderful book, uh, uh, besides yours, uh, by Tom Howard, uh, Chance or the Dance, I, I think nails it. Uh, it. It anticipates much of what uh, we're describing and certainly what the Pope set down in his Wednesday audiences. The great question, is it chance or the dance? Uh, is the script divine or is it sort of mindless, uh, matter in motion? I, I, I think of the ancient myth that, that Tom describes as everything meaning something which Christianity did not disavow, but deepened and, and baptized. The modern myth, which is everywhere in the saddle, declares nothing means anything. Everything is random, you know, this loose concatenation of atoms. There is no metaphor to signify anything. Uh, and, and that is an invitation to despair. Mm. And, and what you are uh, uh, proposing is, is so liberating that it, it uh, it terrifies me to think that most of the world has not tuned in, uh, is utterly indifferent and prescinded from this message. For example, that wonderful book, uh, at least by worldly standards, Eat, Pray, and Love, that made a huge splash some years ago, has nothing to do with what you're proposing. Uh, I mean, she goes to Italy and she samples all the food, and not once does it cross her mind that Eucharist and food may have something in common. And so she writes off an entire worldview steeped in sacramentality. How do we communicate this vision uh, mm -hmm. to people like that? Because they're the ones who are shaping the culture. I mean, they've got the zeitgeist uh, by, you know, by, uh, by the pants, uh, and we need to somehow uh, dethrone them. How do we do that? 
No, and she got the good book title too. That would have been a good book title <laughs> well, no. for me. Well, you have a <laughs> wonderful title. Yeah, these beautiful bones, not bad. Yeah, I like that. But eat, pray, love. I liked that too. Yeah. No, it's very hard, and it's not just hard in the fact that you have a you know world full of people who don't realize that there's beauty and order and a purpose and a plan. Yeah. But you have Catholics who and Christians who often instinctively know, well, there's something wrong with that, but they can't articulate why that's yeah. wrong with it because yeah. they don't see yeah. the beauty in the plan necessarily either. They see the body as just more matter to be manipulated, you know, yeah. so you can nip it and tuck it. Yeah, and as, as an occasion for sin. It's an occasion yeah, for right. sin yeah. or it's something to be controlled. It's not a gift. It's, yeah. So trying to re-enchant the world for Catholics and non-Catholics right. is yeah. a huge task. That is great. That's really exciting. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents for more on this great topic. Yeah, so our bodies and souls are very intimately connected. Um, and, and it's important that we do have a body and soul because we're, we're spiritual as well as physical. Um, and, and that's what makes the Incarnation so beautiful is, is God loves us so much that He can become man and He can become like us, um, actually have a body and actually have a soul. As a nursing student, sometimes you go into the room and you find that your patient is not entirely responsive and sometimes there's kind of a temptation to become super task-oriented and to forget that you're dealing with a soul and a human person. So it's really important just to stay focused on their humanity um, and just that they're a child of God and to promote and protect their dignity as best you can. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about these beautiful bones with Emily Stimson, author and uh, a wonderful person. <laughs> um, Emily, what are, are some of the struggles people have um, at work um, in their everyday lives, and how does the theology of the body speak to them in their struggles? Well, yeah, that's a question that would surprise a lot of people, because you say theology of the body and work, what on yeah. earth do the two of those things have to do together? But we use our bodies to do work. That's right. Spend uh, most of our time. We spend, <laughs> unfortunately, thanks to you, I spend quite a bit of time doing right. some work. Uh, no, we use our bodies to do work. It's part of, it's part of God's plan for man. If you look at the first uh, chapter of Genesis, it's all about work. You know, it's mostly God's work. He's yeah. creating the world. But then he gives man a task. He assigns man a work in creation. We're called to subdue and you know, exercise dominion over the world. And we do that through our bodies. John Paul II talks about the theology of the body. He says that you know, it's our bodies that allow us to do authentically human activity. So mm -hmm. when we're gardening, when we're making widgets and bookshelves or whatever it is we do for our work, it's our bodies that allow us to do that. The problem is, in this world, there's, we've got two things. One, our bodies don't do much work anymore. We, most of us sit at computers. We're, yeah. we're doing repetitive work. Uh, the other is we've disassociated the work we do 
from our faith and from our life as gifts and recognizing other people as gifts. So we don't see that work is also yeah. about love yeah. as much as being at home is yeah. about love. So there's that bifurcation and theology of the body reorders it. Yeah. But let's uh, not lose sight of the fact that the work that we do is for the sake of something superior to work, leisure, play, the pleasure we take in being. I mean, we are invited to luxuriate in the sheer largesse of a world we didn't make, but we're urged to enjoy, to revel, uh, and take delight from. And to do that, you need a body. I mean, the food you eat is not an idea. We're not Cartesians. Uh, I mean, that would be a cheap date if you only had ideas, abstractions to consume. But we take pleasure in being a body, and, and that is sacrament. And that's what Catholics have, and that's what gives us an edge over against everybody else. We take seriously the body. Aquinas calls it a substantial advantage. And certainly his own body was wonderfully substantial, I think close to 300 pounds. We're not angels and we're not animals. We're psychosomatic unities. And that is something worth celebrating. You know, every day is Babette's feast. In it other words. is, and I think one thing that we should be clear about is before the fall, there was no working for right. leisure. We were, work was leisure, work was joy. You know, right. Right. think there about the no times when you're doing something that you really love. Yeah. And it's as leisurely to you yeah. as you know, listening to a symphony. Yeah. And that's how work was before the fall. It was a joy to use your body. It was a joy to use it to serve others and make things and image God, because right. that's what we do when we work, when we create. We're imaging the creator. And after the fall, there came stress and sweat right. and a whole lot of other things Toiled combined with the sweat with of your work. brow. Yeah. And so, so there is at work this, I just kind of re repeat that. I mean, so we're at work, we're sitting and, and we're typing on the computer. How does that have anything to do? I, I just want to hear that really clearly. Theology of the body impacts me as I'm, I'm making a bookshelf or, or answering phone calls and, and it shows me what? Well, it's always an act of love. So we're all called to see our work as a way of serving God, as a way of serving others. Even if you can't see the connection between what you're typing, the way that you're acting, the way are you being responsible? Are you doing your best? Are you being kind to all of the people around you and showing appreciation for the people who help you do the work you do? That's a way of recognizing that other people are gifts and treating them as gifts. I think too. that's the key. You know that men are not machines. Yeah. That they are persons, and persons have this inescapable element of rela relationality. I mean that they're made for other people, uh, and I think that when we work in that mindset, we recognize that we're relating to other people. We're not just cogs in a machine that spin round and round. There's something else though, I think, in our culture that makes it difficult to relate to the theology of the body. Because just as people in the Catholic Church tend to sexualize the theology, theology of the body, I think there's also a tendency in the world to sexualize what it means to have a body. Mm. And it's a reductionistic tendency that we find everywhere. What John Paul does, and what you're also doing here, but you know, your book is much shorter than his book, and so <laughs> man and woman he created words. them. You know, the, the, the title that Michael Waldstein, you know, man and woman, he created them, and that's really what was there in the original when he first wrote it in Polish before he became Pope. Man and woman. This is not just you know, differences in physicality that reduce to sexual functionality. Uh, men approach work differently than women approach work. Men approach eating differently. Men approach sex differently. Men approach recreation differently. And I think that difference that complementarity, that's a mystery that even when you read the theology of the body, it's still tough to grasp. 
Yeah. And, I, and I think that's part of why it is that not only the culture struggles, but even Catholics who want to get it have trouble getting it. That's I mean, true. this, that's I think, true. is at the heart of radical feminism, which is a rejection of that distinction, the distinction yeah. that we celebrate. Men and women are different. Uh, and, and the differences, I, I think, are worth preserving and defending. I mean, the fact that we go through the body in order to bring life into the world. We don't spiritualize intercourse. So in vitro fertilization is unnatural. There's something really grotesque about that, bypassing corporeal relations in order to midwife a child, as if you're talking about some damn blueprint. You're talking about bodies and, and the love that somehow in the exchange of pleasure uh, of, of the loins of men and women make possible Stop this that. flowering that, of that's life. That's such a good point. I mean, yeah. that the test tube is interchangeable with the marital embrace. Right. Because the outcome is all we really need. You know, I, I think men tend to reduce things to binary oppositions, that it's this and then that. We distinguish in order to separate, and then without a woman coming in, we may end up not just separating, but opposing things. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's, it's always dangerous to overgeneralize, especially when it comes to a man overgeneralizing about women. <laughs> you know? But I think that the wisdom that women bring is a relational, yeah. concrete yeah. insight yeah. into things that are related persons that are interrelated, you know, individuals that are made for others. You know, that's at least the wisdom that Kimberly gave to me and continues to struggle giving to me right. on a regular basis. And I, and I, I, and I want to say to the culture, no wonder you're struggling. We are too. Right. You know, this is a wisdom that requires the Eucharist, that requires sometimes eating disorders or other disorders to kind of jar us awake right. and recognize we need God much more than we thought. Well, and that's what goes back to, there's, there's a chapter on spiritual parenthood in here. And you, when you think about the body expresses the person. Yes. Our bodies are different. You know, there's four different people here with four different bodies. And the differences between me as a woman and you as men, they're not just incidental. And the culture likes us to tell. They're sacramental. They say that's it's, right. you know, it's totally you know, men, women, it's just X chromosomes, Y chromosomes. But it's not. It's this fundamental different way of being a body, of being a human person. And the body, helps us figure our way through those culture scripts. Because the culture says there's no difference. You know? right. well, we're all the same. They're just trying to reduce it down. Right. Just trying we're to we're yeah. four bodies. That's mathematical. Like, right. And we're physical. You know, that's the material. Yeah. You know, and we're just sort of you know, interchangeable. But they don't recognize that our bodies are signs, sacraments right. of persons who are made for relations, apart from which we're not going to be happy or fulfilled. Right. And when and you think exactly. about it, the supreme sacrament is Christ, the incarnate word, the perfect existential metaphor. I mean, eternity and time, nature, grace, God, man, they fuse, they come together. This perfect integration of, of, of heaven and history. He has a body in order to express that which is not body. It, it's the analogical imagination. It looks for connections, correspondences everywhere. I mean, the sun pours energy into the earth, man pours energy into the woman, and what happens? Fruit, life. I mean, as Scott. And the woman's body, too. I mean, the new Adam brings about a new creation, but not without a new Eve. Right. And Mary doesn't just have a body, incidentally. Right. That is something essential to her role in our redemption, too. And so, Emily, you started Sorry mentioning. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> so, you, you started the concept of spiritual parenthood. You, you had mentioned that. And oftentimes people think about that and, and see that as reserved for religious or for priests. You know, how does that fit in your understanding of the theology of the body? Well, it's just, just the body shows us how to love. 
You know, John Paul II says, become who you are in Familiaris Consortio. Um, I'm called to become a woman. You know, you're called to be, we are women and men, but we're called to really embrace that. Yes. Um, and what the woman ultimately is, is a mother. You know, mm -hmm. that's when John Paul II says that, you know, that we're the most, most ourselves in the moment of communion. Yeah. And what comes of communion between man and woman is new life. You know, mm -hmm. so when a woman is fully giving herself body and soul to another, she becomes a mother. When a man is fully giving himself body and soul to another, he becomes a father. And yeah. so when we Before look at is. motherhood and fatherhood, yes. we start to find a chart, a course, for how we're to love. How I'm supposed to love everybody, not just my children. Right. How Regis is supposed to love everybody, not just his yeah. children. How we're called to love as men and women. And it is different, like Scott said. It, and it's something that you, I mean, as soon as you say fatherhood or motherhood, there's yeah. also the tendency to reduce it to the physical. Well, what, I'm, I'm not married, so I can't be a mother. Right. You're not married, I'm not and married. yet you are a mother. Every Thursday night, for years and years, the hospitality yes. and the cooking, the environment that you've created in our neighborhood, in our community, and not just you, but other single women too, find their way through the help of the Holy Spirit to exercising a spiritual motherhood that John Paul rightly yeah. describes as the feminine genius. Mm. And in some ways, those women, I won't speak for you, but I've known women who are single and who experience a motherhood, a spiritual maternity that is comparable to Kimberly. I mean, and hers is not just physical or natural, it's also supernatural and spiritual. But I think this is one of those things we're on the verge of discovering and yet we keep getting distracted. We're like, mm. what? Oh, let's get back to that. You know, and we got to live in that. Well, because mo motherhood and fatherhood aren't ultimately physical. You know, if you just right. father a bunch of children, but you don't father them. Right. You're, you're not a father. Out. You're not yeah. doing what yeah. you're supposed to yeah. do. But, but you know? the physicality is, is something ineluctable. It's inescapable. And, and for a woman, I think the reminder is so natural, so effortless, because at least once a month, most women are reminded of, of this capacity to create. It's, it's inscribed into the very syntax of who they are. Uh, and, and the two loftiest vocations for, for a woman, virginity and maternity, are both rooted in bios. I mean, you give, you're open, you're receptive, this mm. virginal readiness to receive. It's, it's at the heart of love, the gift of love. That's the nuptial meaning. You give yourself your body, and that signifies a total donation of self. Well, and that's one of the most beautiful things about the body, is women's bodies are really created for motherhood. Not just that we have a womb, but our elbows bend right. differently than yes. men's. Yes. You know, yes. women's, our hips, everything about us is made to nurture a child, whether or not I may never nurture a child, you know, of my own, but I hold babies and I hold them a lot easier and better and different than well, they, they do. Women have a voluptuary character, which I don't think we should recoil from. I mean, that's why I'm drawn to the artwork of, of Rubens and Rembrandt. I, I don't like this cult of thinness. I, I think women should not be ashamed of being a body, you know, having a little flesh, because that's part of the gift. You know, that point, I think, needs to be supplemented. And it's not just the openness and the receptivity of the woman. It is the attractivity. It is beauty. Yeah, yeah, I yes. mean, that's what initiates. I mean, man is so aware of the objective difference of the feminine bodies being open and receptive, but we're not aware of the power that has been exerted on us in terms of the beauty that is attracting us. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I think it, that beauty yeah, is the, something the clerk, that is... The clerk in the office pool who is drawn to the stenographer doesn't say, you know, I just love how you type. 
That, that has nothing to do with it. You're beautiful. I like right. to look at you. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, this is, this is an amazing topic. I know I want to go a little deeper. Um, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents as we go a little bit deeper into the theology for every day, theology of the body for every day. Stay with us. dress up so that people will respect me and not look at me as an object. Um, I think that modesty plays a big role in that as well, so that people don't just look at my body, but at who I really am, and I think that how you dress can portray that. I've, you know, always been taught I was made in the image of likeness of God, and it kind of reminds me of how at Christmas time, you know, you get someone that perfect gift that has their personality sort of etched into it. Like, you know, it's a thoughtful gift. You get something that they'll enjoy. So it's basically the same concept. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Thanks for tuning in to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very mission of Franciscan University. Uh, this studio uh, is here on the campus of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, all our uh, cameras and the equipment are being uh, operated by our students, our, our regular panelists, our theology faculty here at the university. And today we're actually joined by our very special guest who is a, a friend here in Steubenville who uh, has worked many years uh, behind the scenes with uh, University Presents. Uh, and we're talking about these beautiful bones. This is, this is a great topic for us. We, we, we started on some great areas with uh, the everyday theology of the body. Uh, but what impact does this understanding have on simple things, even like our dress or manners uh, for us as Catholics? This, this theology of the body and the way you understand it. Well, it's a little different for dress and manners. With dress, we remember the body expresses the person, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And that's not just our body in the morning in the shower, it's our body as we walk through the world. And if the body expresses the person, the way we attire the body expresses mm -hmm. the person. You know, We are made to perceive the spiritual through the physical. We don't know anything just because we're infused with knowledge. You know, We, we perceive it through the created world. And so when we dress a certain way, we're communicating something. So when we see a cop in a uniform, we say, hey, there's a cop. Right. When we see a guy wearing a priest collar, we say, hey, there's a priest. Right. And the world too, when they see us, says, hey, there's somebody who respects themselves as an individual, or there's someone who's a slob and can't get their act together, or someone who is saying, hey world, I'm an object, You know, come wound me some more. So those clothes communicate something. And we have to be aware that how we live in this body, how we move in this body, it's all a witness. And so mm -hmm. everything we do and so wear our, our, is a witness our to Christ. Our externals that we commu we're communicating about who we are and what, what dignity we believe we have. Right, and is it's that? saying something about who you are, like who mm -hmm. you think you are, who you want to communicate that you are. 
Yeah. You know, I think there's a tendency to say, well, that's just style, fashion, you're being a snob, you know, these things just pass and change all the time. Well, you know, that's true. You've got to be careful. But at the same time, you've got to recognize we live in a culture. We live at a point in time where fashion and style, you know, as long as they're going to be done right, are expressive of things that are, that are serious, that are meaningful. You know, I know in Scripture, um, when you look at the description of Adam being made in the image and likeness of God, there is a priestly quality to his role. Conversely, when you look at the priest in the book of Exodus, you actually discover what the Jews of the first century emphasized and that he wears garments of glory, garments of holiness, garments of beauty. That, that clothing has something to do with who we are as persons made in the image and likeness of God. Even if the culture doesn't get it, even if no style or fashion can capture that, nevertheless, I think the way we dress and the way we comport with others, you know, manners, customs, I think people today are just, you know, apt to throw that stuff out and say, oh, mere convention, mm. get over it, be yeah. direct, be blunt. No, customs, manners, that's the way you institutionalize charity. That's the way you take other people seriously and create the space that we can really be persons. And I think your book draws that out in a way that is singularly important, hmm. that manners aren't just things that people did and we can do away with. Yeah, I think when men no uh, forsake manners and, and jettison that whole network of, uh, of fashion that respects privacy, modesty, temperance, they become slobs. Uh, they, they embrace a kind of grunge culture and they become slugs. Uh, woman, uh, her tendency, I think, is to become a slut, uh, to look sort of uh, shrumpish. Uh, and that too has to be resisted. Uh, I think it was Eric Gill who made the point that woman is so provocative, just on the face of it, that as a courtesy to men who admire her so much, she ought to conceal something of her mystery. And, and I, I like that. I mean, mm. you're, you're on display all the time anyway. You can't escape the fact that you are a body. But leave something to the imagination. And, and naked and unashamed applies, I think, to husband and wife alone, uh, not, not to uh, you know, the public world. Uh, and that quality, I think, is a way of respecting yourself and, as Scott puts it, institutionalizing this ethic of charity for everybody else. We, we ought not to be forced uh, you know, into a, a place of heroic chastity uh, when we just want to relax. Or, or if you go to mass, you shouldn't be distracted by, by you know, the shape of the woman in front of you. You ought to be drawn to the Eucharist on the altar. That, I think, is a kind of favor that she pays uh, to the weaker sex. So, so fashion matters. Fashion matters, manners matter. And, and so manners matter? It all, I mean, it's all a recognition of I'm a gift your gift. Yeah. How do I honor you as a gift? If I'm not saying please and thank you to you, if I'm saying whatever I feel like saying, if I'm dressing however I feel like dressing, I'm not treating you as a gift. I'm not treating myself as a gift. You know, manners are an incarnation of, you know, what we believe as Catholics. Yeah. So using that incarnation, so we are Catholics and we love smells and bells. Everything takes flesh, everything takes form. So talk yeah. about theology of the body in the liturgical life of the church. The lit you know, we're we could, it's easy to say we're called to pray like we're called to live, but really we're called to live like we're called to pray. You know, mm. in the liturgy, the body speaks truly and clearly. It speaks the language it was made to speak. It speaks the language of adoration and praise and contrition. You know, it, and it does that not just as a soul, but as a body. We're kneeling, we're standing, we're, you know, we're crossing ourselves, we're smelling, we're eating God. You know, 
everything about the body is drawn into the liturgy. And when we see that, we're called to go out in the world and live that way, well, doing everything with our body. Even if it. the world's a little bit crazy. And I also think, you know, that, that even in movies, they'll make fun of Catholics for sitting up and down and all these different things, but really it's our body in prayer, it's right. I mean, it, it, it's it's a deeper sign of what's going on that we are we are not as Catholics afraid that our body is actually communicating with the Almighty. Right. It's when we're feeling contrition. You know, we we beat our breasts right. when we're worshiping God in the Eucharist. We kneel mm. before Him. Oh. You know, we're making sure that our bodies are aligned with our spirits. And in some ways, even if we're not all that interested in you know kneeling at that point, we're not thinking about the Eucharist. Right. We're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. When we have to kneel, right. our body is reminding us, hey, Jesus on the altar, pay attention. Right. Right. You know, Focus uh, in. Gregory the Great has a great observation. He, he speculates that when the most solemn part of the Mass begins, the canon, the angels, all the angels suddenly prostrate themselves before the altar. That's pretty telling because they don't have bodies. And that's a reminder to us who have bodies that maybe we should become dutiful uh, and, and bow, abase ourselves, become prostrate, wonderfully, piously recumbent before this reality, the mm -hmm. unfolding mystery of God Himself. What's the most appropriate posture when you're facing God? I mean, you don't want to get too easy uh, and comfortable with Him. There, there needs to be some aesthetic distance, some recognition that you're a creature and this is God. I mean, Moses had to avert his gaze. He got this sunburn because he was looking on, on the face of the burning bush that wasn't consumed. I mean, Rilke tells us that the beautiful is really only the first dimension of the terrible. Uh, and the angels are so beautiful that they have to disguise themselves. I, I think that's, that's very instructive. Yeah. You know, the hour of the liturgy is often something that's just not, not much more than an obligation, you know, and yet it suddenly opens up to something like divine manners, where the body is not just an instrument, but it is a sacrament, and it has to kind of get in sync with the whole sacramentality of the universe. You know, I'm reminded of that one story in the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, where this prince, you know, for one hour is in the chair, and he, the, the, the other 23 hours of the day, you know, he's just kind of caught up in the craziness of the world, you know, and then he swears the name of Aslan, which is the breakthrough in that particular story. When we are seated, or when we are standing, or when we are kneeling, for that one hour, I think we are reorienting ourselves. God is reorienting all of us through our bodies and our souls to the spirits that surround us, the angels and the saints and that sort of thing. And, you know, to be something more than slobs and sluts, you know, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what the liturgy that's alone the can do. And it does it if we let it, you know. It isn't like, well, we will be at Mass in order to kind of make it more than it would be if we weren't, you know, pushing it. And, and it has a certain choreography. It's fixed. There's a script. There are rubrics that you have to follow. And, and maybe you're not there in your head, but your body is moving according to a certain prescribed rhythm, and before you know it, you're there all together. It works yeah. its way in. I mean, the, yeah. the church takes the body seriously. You know, yeah. that's the beauty of being Catholic, is we're in a faith that the body's never left out of the spiritual equation. That's you know, right. whether it's through the sacraments, whether it's through the liturgy, whether it's through the sacramentals we take into our homes and have crucifixes on the walls. There's all these ways of bringing the body into 
the process of redemption. You know, we're not just redeemed as souls. You quote uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, who says, look, behave as if you were a much nicer person than you actually are. You know, fake it until you make it. That's right. And I mean, that, that was the advice that Pascal gave to a young friend who said, look, Pascal, I'm losing my faith. What, what do I do? He said, give alms. Just do what Catholics do. And, and maybe it's not instinctive, it's not spontaneous, it may be difficult, but do it anyway, because gradually you will find yourself back in sync. The yeah. body will somehow instruct the mind right. that this is what good Catholic body That obedience spirit. is what will lead to understanding. Right. You no, know, we usually insist, I've got to understand it yeah. first yeah. and then I'll obey. Right. And it's like, no, Doesn't you're children. Right. You obey. Right. And then eventually yeah. you'll yeah, really understand. <laughs> right. You know? All right, so I want to go to another topic here. Uh, there are, the culture provides us a lot of distractions. Uh, so, how can technology hamper or does it hamper? theology of the body. Well, the church calls technology a great gift, and it is. You know, I love, I love Facebook. I love that I can see pictures of my nieces and nephews. I'm grateful for the friends that I've made through online that I'm able to read things I never would. But it can be so distracting. Mm. There's emails and Twitter updates and Facebook news updates and text messages all coming at us. And there's, T.S. Uh, Elliot talked about, you know, this twittering world. And that's the kind of world we live in. We're just right. distracted from distraction by distraction. And you can't live the theology of the body distracted from distraction by distraction. It, it requires attentiveness right. to the person, to the world, to the culture. And so we have to find a way to manage the technology so that we're actually thinking about what we're doing and not just marching. You know, I, I, I quite like that section of your book. Uh, you know, when you wrap things up in, with, with a, an almost appalled fascination, I read some of those statistics, 644 websites. And I thought, did she count them for heaven's sake? <laughs> and a, like billion, a billion Facebook Facebook pages? I mean, this is really scary stuff. Talk about being distracted yeah. from distraction by distraction. Opportunities galore. It's yeah, endemic. I, I agree that technology is a great gift, you know, but as we say, all that glitters is not gold, all that Twitters is not really valuable. I mean, I won't do truth. Twitter. I am off to, I I, I'm not, to do Twitter. Me too. But I would say this that, you know, uh, dimes and nickels and even quarters are great gifts. But they're small currency, you know? And I think we have to use the technology with an appreciation for it as a gift, right. but we have to recognize that person to person, you know, physical, interpersonal conversation, communion, that's what your book really drives me to, to recognize the relative usefulness and goodness of technology, you know, but the almost unlimited superiority of personal time together yeah. in my home with my coworkers, with neighbors and that sort of thing. And I think that's exactly what technology takes away from us. Mm -hmm. And I think in so many ways, the internet especially strips spouses of that kind of interaction where they're gonna spend hours and hours you know, talking to someone they, don't, they might never meet. Right, and it's right. always evaluating, how am I using my time? Am I using yeah. it to facilitate real world relationships or right. am I using it to replace real world relationships? Right. So real the relations. Facebook isn't the foretaste of heaven. That's right. You know, the That's party right. is the foretaste yeah. of heaven and the Facebook invite may get us to that party, and that's where it's good. You know, but it's, it's grounding it in the real world. It's grounding it in the real world and real human relationships. Right. And limiting Take, our time to it. Yeah. You know, somebody once asked a, a writer I, I greatly admire, uh, what is it that you really hate about war? And he said, it kills conversation. It co-ops everything. And, and the internet is a kind of war, an assault. I, I think upon the integrity of the human person. It, it, it consumes us. It, it's so distracting uh, uh, that 
it, it literally annihilates that space within which real human beings can engage one another. It's actually reshaping our brains. Nicholas Carr has a fantastic book where he looks at all the different evidence on how technology is affecting us. And it's changing who we are. I mean, what we do with our bodies <laughs> affects our souls. Yeah. And what we're doing with our bodies online, what we're doing with our bodies on the computer is changing the way we think, the way we process, the way we treat and see others. Um, and so we, ha we have to use, I have to use technology. It's just part right. of life in this world and I'm very grateful for it but I want to make sure I'm using it and it's not using me. That's and right, right that's there. the attitude I think yeah, we have to take towards right. it. Yeah, because it, it is a good, uh, but there are many temptations, there's many distractions that it provides that we wouldn't have seen, past generations wouldn't have seen some of those distractions. And that's a huge big deal. And because Theology of the Body says our, our bodies are meant for communion and then therefore our lives are meant for communion. And that's both temporal as well as eternal. That's beautiful, that's great. Well. I, as we uh, wrap up, you'll want to join us for our final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. A lot of friends back at home I had were Protestant, and they would talk about uh, the altar calls, where you, where you go up and you, re, you receive Jesus, you accept him into your heart. And I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm like, you know, every time I go to Mass, I receive Jesus in communion, and I receive him spiritually, and I receive him physically where he actually comes into my body and, and he, he gets in my bloodstream and he, he, becomes, he becomes my body through the Eucharist, uh, through receiving him. So it's, it's nourishment, it's a physical nourishment. I can live off the Eucharist and it is a spiritual nourishment. So it nourishes my soul as well as my body. In light of theology of the body, Christ is the main example for us how to love. He showed us with his body how to love and he died for us. And we're called to love in the same way that he loved us. We're supposed to give our bodies to Him and to be that example to others as well, embody Christ within us. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere, just completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors have the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, we've been talking today about these beautiful bones and everyday theology of the body by Emily Stimson. Uh, this is our final segment of our program. Uh, Regis, could you start off our some of the highlights? Yeah, there's, there's so much I, I, I do like uh, about your book, uh, beginning with the title. Uh, it's, uh, it's a marvelous title. It's, uh, it's an inspired choice you made. And that vignette that you sort of set things off with, the Bone Church, mm. uh, that, that's a great favorite of mine. That's one of my favorite places in all of Rome. It's at the foot of Via Veneto where all the fashionable uh, would, would disport themselves. And it's a memento mori, a, you know, a memento mori. It reminds us uh, that, that we are dust and ash and, and we too will become the bones that these clever Capuchin monks had, had so meticulously ridiculously uh, stockpiled in those four subterranean uh, uh, chapels. Beautiful bones. I mean, it reminds me of a, of a line from Hopkins, a great poem, The Caged Skylark. He speaks of man's mounting spirit in his bone house of being. 
And, and if you detach the bones from the being, you're not talking about men and women anymore. You're talking about disembodied spirits, angels. And we don't want to fall into angelism any more than we want to fall into animalism. We're not either. We're men, women. We're incarnate spirit. We're spirit in the world. We're this marvelous composite of spirit and matter. And, and that's what your book, I think, celebrates, and, and it's worth celebrating. And if we lose sight of it, I think we're going to fall into a, a bloody ditch, mm. and we don't want to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I hope, uh, I hope you make a, a real killing uh, in uh, <laughs> selling this book okay, <laughs> to enhance your own body. <laughs> Thanks, Regis. Scott? Well, you know, this book helps to renew the legacy of John Paul the Great. We have gone through three popes. We haven't gone through Pope Francis yet. We're still enjoying him. But it's hard to appreciate something that you're so close to. Uh, John Paul and then Benedict and now Francis. I like the way Cardinal Dolan talked about how John Paul was the soul of the world and how uh, Benedict was the mind, the head, and then we have the heart in Pope Francis. But it's important, you know, as we get more and more fascinated with the personality and the, the amazing graces of Pope Francis, not to forget the fact that this foundation that has been laid for us in Christ, in the Word of God, but especially as it was embodied in the unique teachings of John Paul. St. John Paul, I think, has given to us a theology of the body that is meant to be a legacy that is not just to be renewed now that he's dead, but to be reconnected to the living tradition, and then reconnected even more to everyday life. Food, clothing, shelter, manners, liturgy, how to, you know, to treat technology as it's meant to be, pocket change and all of that. I mean, these are the practical kinds of wisdom that we need to live as Catholics in a world that is becoming so increasingly anti-Catholic, it doesn't even understand itself, much less our faith. And so to live in this world and to conduct the new evangelization in sync with Pope Francis, but also in step with Pope Benedict and John Paul, I think your book is really a, a, a practical guide to how to live godly lives in a very ungodly world. Thanks for writing it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Emily. Well, I think what I want to build off of is what Scott just said about the new evangelization, because we're so focused on engaging the culture, and we want to engage the culture, we want to transform the culture, but what are we going to transform it into? You know, if we don't understand what it means to live an authentically Catholic life, if we don't know the joy and the richness that's there, you know, when we see the world through Catholic eyes, when we're looking at the world with the sacramental worldview, then how do we change the culture? What are we going to replace it with? And so if we're going to engage it, we first have to be living authentically Catholic lives. And I think the theology of the body gives us a way to do that. I can only touch on a few subjects in the book. You know, I had 200 pages at the most, and everyday life is a big topic. So, but what John Paul II does is he gives us sort of a guidebook. He says, here's this vision of what it means to be human. Here's this vision of how to love. Here's this vision of how to see the whole world as a gift, starting with your own body. And when you start seeing the world that way, it becomes easy. You know, the church isn't issuing little memos about how we're supposed to dress as fashions change or how we're supposed to eat when processed foods become popular or how we're supposed to deal with technology. She leaves that to us. But with the theology of the body, when we're looking at the world correctly, all that starts to fall into place and we can build authentically Catholic lives ourselves and renew the culture from within. And we really can build that Catholic culture that once 
transformed people's lives, that once you know, wrote history. There was so much richness in Catholic culture long ago, and it's not gonna be that culture again, but it can still be deeply and authentically Catholic. It can still be true, it can still be beautiful, and that's what we have the thought, theology of the body to help us with. Mm. That is great, that is great. And the new evangelization. Yeah. yeah, thank you for this book. Thank you for being a part of uh, our program today. It was a, a great and lively conversation. Um, if you've enjoyed this topic, uh, we have a, a handout for you. Love in Ordinary Times, The Theology of the Body for uh, Everyday Life, uh, an article by Emily Stimson. You can get this by downloading at faithandreason.com or just by contacting us. Um, also, um, this topic, as we look at it, just tipping off of what Emily just said, as a father, as I look out on what we need in our culture is the next generation to understand a true Catholic theology, a Catholic worldview that is immersed not just in our teachings but in our everyday lives, that they can see and smell and taste what it means to be Catholic because it is different and it is exciting and it's beautiful and it draws people in to something that will change their lives forever. This is something we need to have conversations at the dinner table, at the water cooler, uh, wherever it might be. It communicates who we are as Catholics, as human persons. Um, and that's a profound reality. Uh, Pope Francis keeps talking about the incarnational realities that we need to make present in the world. And the theology of the body gives us that great opportunity so that it might spark a deeper conversation. Why do Catholics stand and pray this way or, or do what, what have you? Or, or why do we dress a certain way? Or, or why do we carry ourselves in this manner? And if we don't know that question, we need to answer that right now and go deeper for ourselves and make sure our children are recognizing that there is an order to this universe and that our lives are meant for something greater and that they can have that eternal perspective on all that they do, whether it's their schoolwork, uh, whether it's their business or other relations that they might have. This is a, a refreshing uh, opportunity for us. As George Weigel said, this is the theological time bomb, and, and we have to set it off by our actions, by launching the new evangelization through our very lives and our everyday life. So thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this is a program that springs forth from the mission of Franciscan University. Our mission is to form the students who are transforming the world. And I want to invite you to be a part of that mission. Uh, possibly by taking a class here, coming getting your degree, uh, joining us in our online or distance education. Maybe you could join us at one of our summer conferences uh, or on our pilgrimages to holy shrines and sites throughout the world. Uh, it is an opportunity for you uh, to go deeper in the call and responding to the call of the new evangelization. Uh, also, Faith and Reason is a website we've put up as an initiative uh, to give you the tools and, and the equipment, if you will, what you need to go out in battle in our culture with renewed hope, with great love, and with deep insight. Uh, people who are here in our, our studios, uh, Regis and Scott, as well as Emily, have things on Faith and Reason, talks that have been given, uh, little short insights that really will help you in your everyday life. So thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381.
That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.